0: Corrections and bear markets. And now on to our lead lag live discussion, hosted by Michael Gaia.
1: My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour here, Simon Mikhailovich, who's got a great following, has a lot of interesting things to say about the current environment and certainly has a interesting background as well. Simon, for those who are not familiar with your story, talk about who you are, how did you get involved in, in markets, in gold in particular, and what are you doing now?
2: Sure. Thank you, Michael. I I was born in the Soviet Union and uh, lived there until I was 19. In 1978, my family emigrated to the United States, essentially left with $100. Just, you know, the perver- not the proverbial, but the actual $100 in a suitcase and basically stateless papers because we had to surrender citizenship. So I have some experience with adversity and expropriation at a personal level, came to the United States. And I guess for the past almost 40 years, I've been in the asset management business, initially in uh, credit, and then workouts, and then structured credit, CDOs, prime mortgages, with good success during the 2008 crisis. And then I guess since uh, for the past uh, 10 years, I've focused on gold, and we, we will talk about what's go- what I think is going on, and then maybe it'll become clear why I switched from credit to gold. But it was not on the basis of me thinking that this is a great place to make money. It was more on the basis of me thinking that the financial system is a great place to lose money over a certain period of time. And so that's essentially my background, very
1: briefly. That's a, a pretty dramatic transition to go from a Soviet Union economy to working in a quasi-capitalist asset management industry. <laughs> I'm yeah, curious, well, I'm, cur- I'm curious sort of the, the the challenges in that transition, because, you know, look, we all know what we're exposed to as a as a child, in terms of economic systems and the way the world works, but yeah, you know, that's a pretty. Uh, it's almost like two ends of the uh, of the spectrum. Talk about that that transition. What helped you kind of reeducate around the way economies should work and the way asset markets would work in particular?
2: Well, it wasn't it wasn't hard for me because I left at the age of nineteen, so I would I was just like two years into college, and my my major there was engineering, chemical engineering. So I was not studying economics or business or anything like that. Those were just hard sciences, which are same the same everywhere and my age was such that when i arrived here it was fairly natural for me personally to uh, slide into the new system i spoke good english i went to special school in, in the soviet union that taught english six days a week you know since second grade and so for me it was not that big a transition now i understand now how big a transition it was but it sometimes takes perspective and some experience and, and sort of wisdom that comes with age to realize when you look back and you say, I, I got from where to where, how, and then you shake your hand, you shake your head. But at the time, it seemed a pretty, it seemed natural to me or felt natural to me and exciting.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. Okay. So so you and I were recording a little bit back and forth on on topics and I was going through some of your Twitter threads and especially the one that you have on your pinned tweet and We name this the crisis, or I name this the crisis of Western civilization, and I'm going to share the thread in a second, but you've got this great thread, which got a lot of engagement, and you talk about rest in peace, world peace, rest in peace, nuclear security, rest in peace, globalization, rest in peace, global internet, rest in peace, rule of law, rest in peace, international intellectual property rights, rest in peace, food and energy security. So I have two questions for you, Simon. One is, how do you do when you're in a party with that kind of sentiment? But then uh, more generally, just how do we get here? Because a lot of things have been obviously thrown off, not just with Russia, Ukraine, but post-COVID and, and the response globally. Well, what, let's talk about the, the, the seeds that got us to this place, this place here.
2: Sure. The party answer is simple. My wife tells me to shut up, which I try to do. So I, I don't talk about it at the parties. Otherwise, it's a, it's a spoiler conversation. But in terms of when I say rest in peace, I don't mean dead forever. I just mean death for this secular or cyclical transition depends on how widely you define it. So let me first of all say a couple of things about what I'm about to say, because some of these ideas are very dramatic sounding. And it's difficult for people who have never been through a difficult transition or, or adverse transition to buy into the fact that this may be happening. And so they 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 feel like this is naysaying and it's dramatic and it's over the top. And therefore, it is not worth seriously considering. First of all, the end of the Western civilization, World War III and other things. Look, I, I grew up with my grandparents, who my both my grandmothers passed away when I was 35 or 36. So I knew them really well. And just to give you an idea, these people were born, you know, one grandmother was born in 1897. She was 18 when the First World War started. She lived through First World War. She lived through the Russian, in Ukraine, actually. The Civil War, restoration, you know, uh, reconstruction of the 1920s, purges of the 1930s. During World War II, she was a military surgeon in in the Siege of Leningrad. In fact, three of my grandparents were in the Siege of Leningrad and survived it. And then she ended up in the United States with us when we came in 19 you know left in 78 and she lived here for 17 years so if you think about that you would think that this person must have been crazy or you know despondent or something but in fact i grew up in a very loving and close knit family with friends and we had great parties and even though we lived in the soviet union so I, what I, the first thing i want to say is collapse quote unquote of our financial system is not the end of life as we know it it's the end of economic life as we know it but it's not the end of life at all. Otherwise, there would be no humanity left in the world after so many imperial and financial collapses that have taken place. The second thing I want to preface this by saying is that to have a conversation, a substantive conversation, about these issues, a, one should, even though those who don't, one should obtain some perspective from history, because it's almost like, you know, sitting in the train looking outside the windows, and, and you know, houses are, blowing, uh, are flowing by and trees. You don't have any perspective, actually, where you are and and where the train is if you're just doing that. So I think historical perspective is critical. And the third thing that I think is critical is some level of agreement on what the words mean. Let me give you an example. The word inflation. Okay, everybody knows inflation. And for 30 years, they said there's no inflation. And now they say there's inflation. What do they mean by inflation? By inflation inflation, the word has come to mean CPI index, consumer price index which is a formula, government-created formula that is changed, whose ingredients have been changed several times over over the past 30 years to address or reflect political exigencies of the moment. And to talk about whether there is or there isn't inflation in this narrow sense completely misses the point of the the lived experience that we're having. And whether you call it inflation or whether you call it some other word, It doesn't really change the reality of what is going on. You know, there are many examples I I can give like that, but that's important. So when people talk about inflation, deflation, these are terms of art that have come to be defined a certain way. Well, there's another very popular one lately. The dollar is very strong. The dollar is very strong. And this is on CNBC every five minutes. The dollar is strong. The dollar is the cleanest, dirty shirt. The dollar. What does that mean? What it means is, it's, it's performing against index called DXY. And what is DXY index? It's six other Western currencies, primarily euro, British pound, Canadian dollar, yen, Swiss franc, I think, whatever, six of them, Australian dollar maybe. Is the, do, is there, is the dollar strong against food? Is the dollar strong against gold? Well, they say, oh, gold is 1,700, but it used to be 2,000. Gold was $35 an ounce in 1971 before we started on this adventure, which we will talk about. And it was $350 or something around that 20 years ago. Now it's $1,800. So is the dollar strong? Well, I mean, if you look at the prices around you, dollar isn't even strong against the ruble, which was higher than it is today when the war started, which was higher means lower against the dollar, 70-some rubles to the dollar. Now it's 60-some rubles to the dollar. So I think it's important before we start this to understand that these throwaway words have meaning, and that meaning of these words is often obscured by use by the financial industry and by the politicians. So, th- so that's important. So, with that in mind, if you take, if you think sort of of where we are and where we came from, obviously this is a huge topic that can take hours. We don't have hours, so I will simplify this as, as much as possible, but. The gist of it is, is we, are, we are at the moment, moment in time, where we're seeing convergence of multiple trends, some of which are centuries-long trends or cycles. Some of them are, you know, one century long. Some of them are just economic cycles. So, for example, for the past 500 years, the Western civilization, the rise of the Western civilization, has been propelled by absolute superiority in the military, technological, economic, and financial spheres. So if you think of the first trip, I, I know this sounds like it's totally irrelevant to what we're talking about today, but it's directly relevant. Believe me, if you, if you look a little bit, if you sort of stand back a little from where we are, you will see the relevance of this fact. Going back to Columbus, you know, trip to America's for the, for the next 500 years, uh, Western Europe and then the United States. Essentially, if you look at the Industrial Revolution, if you look at the technology, sciences, We had absolute superiority over, if you compare to China and India, even 50, 60 years ago, we had absolute superiority. We do not have that superiority right now. You can see that the Chinese have the manufacturing facilities, the level of technology, military of technology, Russia has military technology that are on par and in some cases are better than ours. That's a big game changer in geopolitical balance of power. That is coming right now into focus with the war in Ukraine and with what's going on with China. Okay, We are at an end of a cycle in terms of fiat money experiments. So for the past 50 years or so, our money has since 1971, our money has not been based on anything. This is not a pitch for gold standard or anything like this. This is simply to observe. And by the way, everything I'm doing is not making projections. I'm just trying to make observations. And hopefully people can then Take these observations and explore them further to discover for themselves whether what I'm saying makes sense or not, as opposed to trying to tell you what's actually going on. And I'm just trying to give people a roadmap, I guess, or some point, points of reference. So, you know, the, there have been fiat money experiments along the way. Again, this is not about gold standard, this is simply about a system whereby the emittance or issuance of financial claims, money, credit, is not tied to anything scarce. So the gold standard is simply a mechanism that has been devised through the millennia of limiting ability to emit money. So it's uh, you know scarce one scarce commodity chasing another scarce commodity. So when you have too much money chasing too few goods as they say and these goods can be financial assets or they could be food or energy or housing or anything when you have too many financial claims chasing a Smaller or constrained quantity of something, then naturally it takes more claims to buy that something because there's more of them out there. So we are, we've been in this experiment for 50 years. They've been tried many times or a number of times. All of them have failed and for obvious reasons, because politicians in the end, you know, try to satisfy voters by creating money and programs and giveaways so that people vote for them. And traditionally, they they run out of room and, and the thing sort of resets. And I think that that's a convergence of another cycle that we are right now observing. United States geopolitical position as the hegemonic superpower. So to understand why this cycle is going in the wrong direction right now, all you need to do is just take a look back at how the United States or what made the United States the hegemonic superpower. So after the, the win in, in World War II, the United States was left as the largest creditor nation. So we had the largest financial prowess. Our, our currency has become world reserve currency. It was backed by gold. So in other words, it had trust of other people that it will not be proliferated indefinitely, you know, w- without limits. We had the largest manufacturing base. We had the strongest military. I mean, we were the best across Multiple important categories, and the Americans were united. They were they were coming of a great win in World War II, and there was a tremendous societal cohesion. Fifties, some people say that there was a lot of conformity during the fifties, and you can describe it that way. But you can also describe it as a common purpose, which was particularly reinforced by the Cold War and the opposition to the communist ideology and, and the Soviet Union, which united Americans in the Western Alliance. In a, in a very common sort of purpose. Well, so just take a look at where we are today. We we have the worst polarization. We, well, almost the worst ever, probably going back to the American Revolution or a civil war, at least. And that's obvious. I don't think that's a secret to anybody. We're not the largest creditor nation. We're the largest debtor nation in the world. We have outsourced our manufacturing base, which was the our pride and joy in the post-World War II period to the West. I mean, sorry, to Asia. Our balance sheet has, we have obligations to ourselves, to our pensioners, which under no reasonable scenarios can be met in real value. These are unfunded liabilities and they're made aided into law. And furthermore, not only are these liabilities unconscionably large, they're structured in a way that makes it almost impossible to inflate them because Social Security is indexed to inflation and medicare and medicaid is not a promise of money it's a promise of services and so service the cost of these services has been rising at a significantly higher clip than the cost of a lot of other things so we're we're there the the challenge from russia and china at the moment is essentially leveraging their understanding of these vulnerabilities house divided and of course political polarization is is crazy as i just said but as it says in the bible correctly a house divided against itself cannot stand. So here we are, divided with a bad balance sheet, with all kinds of economic and social issues, and we don't have the military superiority. And I know a lot of people would maybe take issue with that. But let's face it, we have engaged in some foreign wars against vastly inferior adversaries militarily without any success in the Middle East most recently, but also in Southeast Asia less recently. And so I. To think that not questioning that premise is is short-sighted. So we are the convergence of all these trends. And we don't know where it goes from here. But it's clear, I think, just if you pursue some of the areas that I just enumerated and see where we used to be when we emerged as a superpower and where we are today, we are clearly in a much reduced position, even though we seem to talk and act as if we're just as powerful and just as mighty as we were then and our capabilities are just as incredible uh, or superior as they were as they were at the time so i think that all of these things are converging here and the final thing which is kind of a real doozy and that is the economic model that we have so the the united states success was built on on the back of of capitalism capitalism is is a system where they don't have negative interest rates this is a system where failed businesses fail. And the whole idea of capitalism is to provide incentive. And that's not an ideal system either, because it has a lot of negative byproducts. But in terms of ability to produce the highest ultimate result for the most number of people, economic result, that pretty much has been proven through what success of the United States and, you know, industrial revolution in England and Western Europe and so forth. And so that model kind of broke in the 1930s, and so we introduced a quasi-socialist system, which was still largely capitalistic, but it was already quasi-socialist with the tremendous involvement of government, which is a not which is not something that happens in capitalist systems, but is common for socialist systems. All you need to do is just give a thought to to this. How did Enran write Atlas Shrugged in the nineteen fifties? Where, first of all, it's chillingly familiar as to what we're seeing around us, or a lot of things that she writes there are, we're prescient. Where did she get those ideas? Well, she got those ideas during 1930s. And so if you look at the numbers, if you look quantitatively, you will see that until I forgot when the income tax was introduced in the United States, I think 1913 or 1918, a share of government in the GDP went from 5% to first, like, I forgot, like six, seven, eight something percent. And then after World War II, it, it vaulted into 20 percent, and now it's I forgot 25 or something percent. So the role of government has completely evolved, and the government, as we know, is not driven by the same incentives. It's driven by political considerations, but not by the same incentives and the same rigor in allocating resources as a capitalist system. And what emerged when we went off the gold standard? Essentially, we defaulted on our obligations, which nobody kind of pushed us at the time. This is what we're being pushed now, actually, by Russia and China. In this this very area, we went off the gold standard and we went into what I would describe as financialism, which is some sort of a system that puts at the, I guess, at the head of the engine of growth of financialization. And financialization, I would describe as optimization of economy and industry around finance and asset prices, not around most efficient production, not around what's the best for the long term around today's asset prices and financial benefits. Which you, by the way, that's sort, of like, that,
1: that's sort of like optimization of widening the wealth gap, right? I mean, that's-, that's It's, really an, like, uh, it's okay.
2: exactly right. It's exactly right. Yes, it's optimization of, of widening the wealth of those who have assets and who are close to the trough, if you will, and uh, destruction of those who are, or diminution of financial resources of those who are not close to the trough. By trough, I mean source of money, uh, the printed money and credit. So if you look at all the statistics from the 1990s on, 1980s on, you will see that the growth of debt, the growth of asset prices, the the growth of money issuance have far surpassed GDP, which is the economic growth. And in fact, the entire economic system has come to rely on credit growth and consumption financed by credit growth to propel the growth of the economy, or at least the growth of the GDP. And again, this is GDP is one of those, again, one of those type, like inflation and strong dollar terms that most people kind of don't give thought what that is. So GDP captures an income statement, a very particular income statement. And, and it's a specific formula that counts things a certain way. So when the government, for example, borrows, you know, trillions of dollars and spends it into the economy, that's added to the GDP. What it doesn't entail is the balance sheet. And since my background is in credit, I can assure you that balance sheet is what gets you in the end. Income statement shows your results from moment to moment. Balance sheet is, is an accumulated debauchery in this case that cannot be swept under the rug. There's no way to restructure a balance sheet without restructuring a balance sheet. So it's just if you, if, you, if you screwed up your balance sheet, there's just no painless way to do this. And so we are here with this debauched balance sheet, national balance sheet, with with debt and obligations that are not even showing in, in our debt numbers that vastly exceed our cash flows, real term cash flows, available to satisfy these things in the future. And because it's in the future, although in case of baby boomers and their pensions, the future is sort of now the present or the beginning of the present, everybody just kicking the can and thinking that this is all just going to go away. Well, it's not going away. And now we are being challenged internationally by other superpowers who want to sit at the table and who are not interested in financialization anymore. Now, the keystone, the final point is the keystone of our ability to do what we've been doing for this financialization period or this financialism is the preeminence of the United States dollar as a global reserve currency. So its ability to pay with your chits for real stuff, So imagine you're walking around with a checkbook, which maybe doesn't have a bank account attached to it, and all you're doing is you're just writing chits to people. I owe you, I owe you, I owe you. And they're giving you food, they're giving you cars, they're giving you yachts, they're giving you houses in exchange for your chits. And you have this unlimited book. So one day, you may run out of checks. And at that point, the magic stops. And I think that, essentially, this is what we're being called out on in this conflict that is now raging in the world. Which is sort of World War Three. Now, let me just say about World War Three. People think in the, about something like that in apocalyptic terms, but you know, we know from history that world, that war, as one of the uh, Prussian uh, military strategists Clausewitz defined it, is continuation of state policy by other means. So we think of other means as burning the crops and the villages and bombing towns, and certainly those are means, but there are other means that have been brought to us by technological innovation. And that is, you know, through the financial system, that is through the economic system, supply, supply chains in the space, in cyberspace. And so there are other ways in which a world war is being fought so far. And of course, the ultimate danger here is that we have self-destructing capabilities in, in the form of nuclear weapons that are unthinkable. But the problem with humans is mistakes happen. And so we, we hope that, that that cooler heads prevail on that front, but even if cooler heads do prevail, there is no way to stop this war from proceeding because we are perceived by our opponents as having a weaker hand than we have had in decades, and they frankly have the stronger hand that they have had in decades. And so this is a this is a pitched battle, the, the outcome of which is highly unpredictable. And so we'll bear directly on finances and the living standards, freedoms, and, and a lot of other things.
1: So I took down a, a bunch of notes as you're talking, and I'm glad that I left it open-ended to give you the audience kind of the full picture from your vantage point. I want to bring in some of the audience before I go through different uh, directions. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyett here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report/leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion.
2: So gold, like any other good or commodity, doesn't itself do anything. Its price is determined by supply and demand, which is a function of human behavior, right? So when one wonders, why is gold price where it is in light of the facts, some of which I touched upon, one should simply immediately ask a An opposite question. Why is the entire treasury curve trading at around 3% yield when inflation is 8% or 9%? And this is reported inflation by the CPI. Well, that's the flip side. It's the flip side of there being low demand for gold, there being high demand for treasuries whose value, real term, long term value, is based today on a view, rightly or wrongly, a view that inflation is heading back to 2% imminently. And that one would not be getting a negative yield of six or five or six percent for the next two, three, four, five, ten, or thirty years.
1: Well, and also there's and also that there are sort of legal aspects to that, right? In terms of using T bills as collateral, right? I mean, you kind of forced. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, there are all these technical factors, but I'm saying fundamentally. If there were, if there was a loss of, uh, by loss of confidence, if there was suddenly a surge of confidence in people, of an idea that negative rates or that inflation is going to persist for a long time, or I should say uh, debasement of money in which these treasuries' uh, fixed obligations are denominated, then there would be an exodus uh, that no, it's like a run on the bank. You know, it's not a run until it's a run. Everybody, you know, it, it all looks fine until one day there's a huge line outside. So a loss of confidence is a is a steady process but once it reaches critical mass things happen overnight and I think we're in that kind of a situation where faith in the financial system faith in the soundness of counterparties and their ability to perform those obligations that they have undertaken to perform versus to you or or, or to others is fine so You know, you asked me in the beginning, like, how did I get to gold? Well, I I came to the conclusions that I've just shared with you, which suggested to me that the current financial system, as it's organized, is unsound. The one other thing that I I didn't mention is the rule of law. One of the ways that the financial system of the Anglo-Saxon world, which is the UK and then the US, has won the global competition, hands down, no question about it, was the property rights and the rule of law. There's no doubt in my mind, and I think that that's a, that's a an objective state observation that is a critical ingredient in the preeminence of the Western finance over the rest of the world. Everybody knew around the world, outside of the Western world and in the Western world, that whether you're doing something financial in London or New York, there's a court system that would adjudicate any dispute. And even if you don't win the dispute, the judge... Would not be bought off by the other side. That just wouldn't happen. Like in Russia, for example, or in Brazil, you know, or whatever. I'm not, we're not, that's not in names, but in many other countries of the world. Okay. Which is why a lot, you know, jurisdiction, when contracts are made, a lot of times they use either British or US jurisdiction for that very reason. But then look at what's just happened in the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years. I mean, we have massive criminality and depredations in the financial sector. Massive. But be and that's not my opinion. I mean there just look at the deferred prosecution agreements with the major banks, money laundering, trading against clients, Wells Fargo opening fake accounts uh, hundreds of thousands of fake accounts of customers to charge them fees, just stealing money, just stealing money from people. nobody prosecuted, they pay the fine, and they move on. property rights, whether you like Russians or not, that doesn't matter because in the eyes of the law, everybody should be the same. so here's a bunch of Russians, okay, good, better and different whose assets are frozen, not because there's a court order against them, but because politically, you know, political organs decided that this is what they want to do. Or Canadian truckers. Oh, you come out to to demonstrate against the government? Okay, how about we freeze your bank accounts? Again, without any court sanction. Those are objective signs of the destruction of the property rights and of the legal framework that has been the cornerstone of our financial preeminence for hundreds of years. I don't know that there's an argument about it, but I think these facts are pretty, speak for themselves.
1: Let me just remind everybody here for the remaining 24 minutes or so, please make sure you follow Simon on Twitter. You can tell very thoughtful in his broad view on things. I think it's an important discussion to have.
2: So let me answer as quickly as I can. A, I don't know what the answer is. Nobody seems to know, not the Russians, not the Chinese, not the the West, in terms of what is the future engine of economic growth, how it should be arranged, how the incentives should be organized, how it should be financed. It, 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 it may sound crazy when I say that, but it's, it's really true, because we can see objectively through the living standards, through stresses in the system, through the unfairness of the system as it, as it evolved, and through reliance of the system on debt, as opposed to capital, which is capitalism is about capital. Financialism is about paper claims, not, not hard money or not hard value. I mean, it doesn't have to be hard money. It can be hard assets, things in limited supply. So there, there's really no answer to that. Now, in terms of Bitcoin, and that ties in with, with the question of gold. So the question one should ask oneself, you know, people have a tremendous faith in technology and tremendous faith in, 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 in this technology not being subject to government fiat. So about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general, first of all, I think it's, a, it's an attempt to use technology to fix human frailties and failings. So we you know, we have this system that, through technology, can make an honest and, and fair system with limited, where, where you have a limited resource, such as Bitcoin, for example. But the problem with that is, is the system, first of all, is not independent. The system, I know it's global, and I know it's distributed, but it's not independent. It relies on electricity. It relies, it's basically a business. It's a business run by consensus, by a group of digital industrialists okay, who control the mining. And to rely on the fact that these people are different from the people in the incumbent financial system, I think, is foolhardy. The reason gold is gold is because it's not a human project. See, Bitcoin is a human project. Even though it, it relies on this cryptography and technology, it's a human project with built-in obsolescence. Because quantum computing may completely change the, you know, cryptography. And there could be a lot of other things that can happen uh, between now and then. And in the fact if we know anything about the history of technology is it's that the technology is ever evolving. Nothing, you know, nothing stays the same uh, forever. And so to rely on something as a long-term store of value when it is completely dependent on the backbone, internet backbone infrastructure, that is controlled by government, that requires energy. That requires equipment. So technology is sort of this amorphous word when people say, oh, technology. But you know, technology is actually is run on industrial, <laughs> industrially manufactured products that also have supply chains, like, for example, chips in Taiwan that may become unavailable and things like that. So I don't see Bitcoin. I don't have any ideological objections to it. I just see it as another human project. And all projects like that have entropy. And so it's obviously been a great speculation for many, but I don't see it as a long-term placeholder that can solve it. And of course, we are seeing tremendous criminality in that space. There are all kinds of thefts and, 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 you know, it, it, I know people would say nobody has broken into the blockchain, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. The infrastructure itself is vulnerable enough. That vast monies have been stolen, misallocated and, and, and so forth. So we're trying to get away from human nature through some technological innovation. And I just don't see how that's, that's possible. And that's where gold does not have any of that. It's, it, it's just a hunk of metal. It doesn't have to be gold. It could be something else. The reason it's became gold is just, it, it just happens to combine certain properties that uniquely Come together, independence from the financial system, independence from the network, independence from human endeavor. Gold exists in its own sort of independent space, and the value of independence. So going back to Paolo's question, you know, the value of independence, the value of not being beholden to the financial system or any particular country or any particular government. It's like freedom. You know, you really don't care about it until you've lost it. I mean, you take it for granted,
3: that's, on, and that's
2: on, you don't put a lot of price on it.
3: We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now.
1: Yeah, I no, there's a lot right will I'll, I'll try to circle back to you. And I don't want to make this kind of too focused on Bitcoin, because I think at the core, it's a question of is there any way to create forced discipline, right? Whether it's with a gold standard or the Bitcoin standard, because that's really the painful solution to a lot of these trends that are converging in a nasty way. I think that's sort of at the core of it. It's ultimately all about discipline.
2: Yes self discipline or enforced discipline right energy or cheap, access to cheap energy has been at the cornerstone of financialism because financialism essentially puts money or or credit or financial claims at the head of everything and when it and creates incentives to create oversupply of everything because cheap money you know it's easy to build factories it's easy to do things with cheap money or cheap credit Which, by the way, you don't ever have to repay because all you do is refinance continuously. So this is like a wonderful money machine. So I think energy scarcity or forced scarcity through sanctions. We're not the only ones who can impose sanctions. Russians impose their own sanctions. And access to cheap manufacturing, which is China. I think those are key factors. And essentially, those are the primary weapons. That are being used and will be used in this World War III against us. Unfortunately, I think with significant success, which will force us to restructure ourselves and, and to, you know, get sober. And what was the second part of your question? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Well, that that's common sense. I mean, that's obvious why that is. Because the role of finance is to simply be an intermediary that allocates the channels. Resources from people who have capital and safe capital to people who want to use it for productive endeavors. So, when prior to two thousand eight, you know, financial sector S and P earnings became like twenty seven percent or twenty eight percent of all the earnings for essentially a middleman function. Well, that's not sustainable. You can't extract twenty seven percent commission out of an economy to and, and make it and be and be successful uh, against other people. I mean, it just doesn't work. So, yes. Financial, financial depredation always precedes the fall for that very reason. It's a misallocation of resources. It's directing it to a small group of people at the expense of a large group of people and in a nonproductive way, because all they're doing is they're just, just taking a cut. That's all. You know, They're not actually building anything. OK, so a pound of wheat and a pound of gold are two different things, because a pound of wheat cannot be stored for a long time. So the difference between the the reason gold has become gold and wheat has not become gold is because gold does not degrade, does not oxidize. And when people find buried treasure, it looks as new as it it ever has. And by the way, it's still a treasure. So if you find buried wheat from 2,000 years ago, it's it's worthless. Not because it's not worth it, but you can't eat it. It it, it degrades. So in the moment, wheat is more important than gold. But once you've satisfied your hunger, how do you store your purchasing power for future consumption? And that's where gold has a role that's different from consumable commodities. Gold is not consumed. Gold is mined to be owned. And, so, and the reason it's mined to be owned is because it is a placeholder for value retention over long periods of time. And it has proven to be tremendously effective as that. E- even today, even today, not moment to moment, but over, if you look at over decades, which is a typical person's savings horizon, you know, career from 20 years to 65 or something like that. Over those kinds of time frames, gold has proven to be extremely effective. I think the BRICS, look, this is, I don't, nobody knows because we're dealing, there's a great piece by Zoltan Pojar that just recently came out and he talks about that. It's, it's, some of the, it's, it's similar ideas in that we are in a stochastic environment, which is random the the future path is random i mean you can easily say that well based uh, demographics is one of the trends i haven't mentioned demographics is destiny and the western world demographics are terrible now it's not to say that they can't be fixed but it takes 20 years to fix them right uh, it takes 20 years for humans to become adults and so if we start tomorrow it's not going to take place for 20 years so we're we're screwed on that front until we, and we're not turning it around. But if we did turn it around, it would still take us 20 years to fix. So to, to identify today how this all plays out and how BRICS, you know, come into that is very difficult. I think the gist of this conflict that we're in is demand from the majority of the world for what's called multipolarity, which is against dominance of, of one country. And some sort of plurality, which is a breakdown. But, you know, humans, it never works that way. It it ends up being, you know, camps that the competing camps breaks out. But the essential urge here from Russia and, and from China and from India and Brazil is to have a seat at the table and have not a rules based order, which by which the United States, we mean play by our rules, but we don't have to play by our rules. Everybody else has to play by our rules. For what they call a international law order for which where the rules are the same for everybody. And to be honest, it's very hard to argue with that. I mean, we can say we're special. We can say we have good intentions, but when people look at us from the outside and look what we've done over the past 20 years in the military (laughs) international arena, you know, you, you can't, you can't blame them for, for wanting something different. So I hate to tell you, I, I I wish I had an answer. What I what I do believe in terms of inflation deflation speculation debate is that it's probably not a good framework to think about, I, because again these are all defined terms and their definitions are very narrow. So I think where we are heading is debasement of financial claims through a combination of deflation inflation deflation meaning loss of value inflation meaning higher nominal price but lower real value, potentially confiscation, expropriation, and many other shuns, you know, a combination of things. But essentially, to get from here to there, there will need to be destruction of what is thought of today as value. Going back to the balance sheet, for every asset, there's a liability. And for every liability, there's an asset. And every dollar of debt is a dollar of somebody's assets. So when we say jubilee, or when we say we're going to just write off the debt, so we're going to do this or that. You cannot do that without those people who are holding those debts as assets losing their money. And who are those people? It's us. It's the pension funds. It's the entire, it's the global retirement systems. It's the savers. It's the workers. You know, these, these banks, behemoths, and asset management behemoths, I mean, whose money are they managing? It's ultimately people's money. So people are going to have to take a hit. And that's, the, and that's a political problem. So, and that's where the house divided against itself cannot stand. Because to get from here to there, how do we get from here to there politically, never mind financially? How do we dis- 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 save all these people from real value and leave them in penury and not have uh, dramatic political consequences that may lead to all kinds of highly unpredictable and potentially adverse outcomes? I don't want to be apocalyptic. I just want people to understand. And read up on some perspective as to what is going on. The world has been in this place many times before. The opening line of Leo Tolstoy's novel Anna Karenina, which is actually about you know betrayal and you know infidelity and tragedy, is every fa- all happy families are alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. So just because we're happy, we're having a particular crisis with specific circumstances that are peculiar and particular to this moment in time because of technology, because of a lot of different factors, it doesn't mean this has not happened before in broader strokes. So to look at all this, the answers, I I believe, can be derived by looking at history. I, I hope the outcome of all this is the United States becomes a great nation among several other great nations that we bring our manufacturing home, hugely inflationary. That we secure our supply lines, hugely inflationary. What I mean, inflationary costs more money. It costs more money to bring the manufacturing. You can't have Walmart filled with $2 gadgets that anybody can have seven of. If it's made in the United States with the cost of uh, social welfare and, and healthcare and environmental costs, roads, infrastructure, and all these other things that need to be built. All of these things that we need to build to fix this will require additional resources, some of which are controlled by people. Who are trying to bring us to heal, if you will. Okay. So this is a difficult situation where we are fighting a battle with both internal problems and major external problems. And this is how empires traditionally have fallen when internal disagreements, fights, and financial weaknesses have been used by adversaries to pressure. And you know, and the incumbent former hegemon uh, could not stand it, could not withstand it. And that's the danger where we are. So everything we're talking about here is not tomorrow's business. This is not like something that markets are going to do next week or September. We have a 30-year project here that we need to get on with, and we're not getting on with it. We're just still talking about this bad guy and that bad guy. That's not going to fix it. That's just not going to fix it. We have a real problem that needs fixing. Sorry, went too long, but go ahead. No,
1: no. I guess we're out of time. Yeah, no, we only got uh, two, three minutes left, so we'll try and have uh, the last question here. But again, everybody, please make sure you follow Simon. I think, you know, this is uh, just great to listen to the way that he frames things.
2: There are lots of books. You know, if you go to our website, bullionreserve.com, there are suggested reading there. But, I, but I, I, we can finish with an example of why it's so important. So we hear all this, Putin is a bad guy who has attacked Ukraine. And it's presented to us as something that if we change the government in Russia, this will change. So just Google in Wikipedia. Polish-Russian wars, you're going to find out that since 981, Poland Commonwealth, Poland and different iterations of Poland, including Ukraine in some of these wars, has fought, has fought 22 wars in a 1,000 years, which is every 50 years on average. Okay, This is not a conflict that started yesterday that will end tomorrow. There is a vast history here. And going about these solutions the way we are, we're going to just take, it's like we're going to take out Saddam Hussein and Iraqis are going to be, it's going to be a democracy. So so I would suggest you can read Barbara Tuchman's August 1914, 1914, which is the lead up, what happened to the lead up to World War I. You can read Stefan Zweig, The World of Yesterday. You can read the famous George Orwell books and then and, Brand and about civil liberties or or forfeiting civil liberties during periods of economic and military exigencies. But again, go to our website, bullionreserve.com. There's a section, Suggested Reading. When I see something that I think is is, is important reading, I, I I put it up there. And you can always ask me on Twitter.
1: Everybody that joined, definitely appreciate those that listened in. I think this was a phenomenal conversation. Again, Simon, really do appreciate your knowledge and you spending this hour with us. And Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, everybody.
3: Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at LeadLag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube and check out the LeadLag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code podcast30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.